Hello, and welcome to the listening room. Listen to what the flower people say. Last week's little foray into metalcore, I decided I wanted to chill out a little bit and listen to something a little bit more mellow, and so um, we're going to be listening to The Valley by Isley. Now, even though the music is a lot more mellow than last week, I think the themes on the record are still pretty heavy, so I would say uh, brace yourself for when you pull out the lyric booklet. And it's kind of funny, I actually wasn't planning on listening to Isley this week. I had another album picked out. I thought it would coincide a little bit better with um, some stuff going on in my life. But um, I visited my parents. We have a family dinner every week, and there was Isley playing in the background. I think my little sister Lainey had turned it on. And uh, man, I was just thinking, I have not listened to these guys in quite a while, and I really like some of their stuff, so I'm going to pop in the album, and it's been on repeat all week, so here we are where we can take a look at it, take a, a deep dive into what's really going on. Now, let me pump the brakes for just a second before we jump into the album. I do want to make you aware of just a few changes, and the first one you've probably already noticed just by pulling up this um, podcast is that this episode is a bit shorter than the others have been. Last week was almost an hour and, you know, there's a couple reasons for that. One of the most immediate reasons is that it is South by Southwest here in Austin, Texas. So I'm spending a lot of time downtown um, checking out new bands and things to do and hanging out with my family. The other side, and that kind of melds into that, is just that this podcast seems to be taking up a lot more of my time than I was first expecting when I started out doing this. You know, I talked about in those early episodes how I wasn't expecting myself to ramble so much about Coheed and Cambria. Well, I'm now I'm seemingly doing that about most of the bands that I'm covering. Because there's so much in these albums, and, and I love uncovering it. I mean, I, I love doing the podcast. It's just taking up a good chunk of time away from my family and other things that I could be doing. So I'm going to pull back just slightly. And all that means, I'm, I'm still committed to putting out weekly episodes, but all that means is that they're going to be shorter. I'm probably only going to tackle half of an album in each episode. I'm going to shoot for more of the 20 to 30 minute range, so you won't hear me ramble quite as much. At least not as long. I'm probably still going to ramble like crazy, um, but it'll take me longer to get through albums. I hope that's okay with you. If it's not, feel free to post anonymously on the internet somewhere. Make your thoughts known there. Um, I, I doubt I'm going to change, but you know, you can do what you want. All right, so back to the album. This album is The Valley by Isley. It is the third full-length album by them, and it was released on March 1st of 2011 on Equal Vision Records. 
The band consists of Stacy Dupree King on vocals, keyboard, and guitar, Sherry Dupree Bemis on vocals and rhythm guitar. We've got Chantel Dupree D'Agostino. D'Agostino, I think. I think I pronounced that. The Broccolo kids having a hard time pronouncing people's last names. Anyways, she's on lead guitar and she does some occasional vocals. We've got Garen Dupree on bass and Weston Dupree on drums. Now, if you've never heard of anything from this band before, if you haven't thought to take a look at who the members of the band are, they all share a similar last name, and that's because they're all related. Um, the three girls in the band, Chantel, Stacy, and Sherry, are all sisters. Weston and Garen are their cousins. So it's this is kind of like a family band, which is interesting and it could just be kind of a pet project you know a reason to get together with family except that i think they write some really good songs um this is their third length and to be completely honest i only liked a handful of songs off of their first two albums now i'm sure if i went back and listened to those nowadays i could probably pull some more out of it that i would like but i remember purchasing this cd within the first week because it was on sale at best buy and man I really liked it. I, I didn't know what happened between the second album and this album, but I love the change, and this is where I really got into the band. Their latest album, Currents, is fantastic as well. Hopefully someday I will get around to that one. Wikipedia classifies this album as indie pop. I was going to go with indie rock, but you know what? It, it probably is more pop than rock, although we do have a lot of influences from rock, maybe even a slight punk influence, but we'll talk about where that might have came from as well um, as we jump into these songs. So without any further ado, let's go ahead and jump into track one, which is the title track, The Valley. So like what I've brought out in previous albums, I really think the first track on an album just kind of sets the tone. It invites the listener in for what you're going to get on the album. And this is another album that has a very good um, intro to the album on the first track. It starts out and you've got Strings and Stacy's voice singing. And immediately, uh, I don't know about you, but her voice is striking to me. It's nice and smooth, but it's still full. It's not just a thin uh, voice, but it's got a lot of body to it as well. And she seamlessly transitions from a very delicate tone to a strong, full tone. I mean, she jumps back and forth. Her vocal melodies are very much all over the place. She shows off her vocal prowess throughout the album, um, but especially in bits like this where it's just her and one other instrument, it really sticks out uh, how strong her vocals are. 
after that intro, we've got the drums coming in, and then we've got a lot of vocalizations coming from all three girls. And that is something that happens a lot on this record, as we'll see lots of vocalization. They layer in a lot of vocals because they have three singers in the band. So they're always giving each other something to do, even when, um, like, for instance, it says specifically in the booklet that Stacy wrote the song. And I think we can tell who writes the songs just by who's the primary singer of the songs throughout the album. But, um, they try and layer in their sisters as well, so they all get a chance to sing something, even if it's not words. Chantel on this album is primarily just singing these vocalizations. Um, there are a couple bits where she sings words, but uh, they do try and use each other's voices throughout. The second verse still has a bit of some sparse instrumentation there, but there's added piano, there's added drums. Um, this song continues to grow. It, it's it's dynamic. It pushes, it pulls, it gets bigger um, at the louder spots, and then it pulls back to something more groove-oriented, really focuses on Stacy's vocals, and then comes back in thick and full with all the vocals, with the vocalizations as well. I noticed on the chorus of this song that the drums do a bit of pumping. So that it gets kind of annoying to me uh, just as, as an audio engineer when they do that. It doesn't seem like this this song is particularly loud. I mean I mean it, it is loud. It just doesn't have the um, you know the aggression of like a loud rock track. It, the levels themselves are loud. everything's nice and clear. So it kind of um, it's kind of disappointing to me that they felt they needed to compress the drums so much. and especially when he hits the kick drum, it does kind of suck in the cymbals there. Um, you know, not not too big of a deal. It just kind of irks me a little bit. I think the chord progression on the chorus is pretty interesting. It's kind of Beatles-esque, if I can say that. They throw in... I think it's maybe a minor progression. I, I'm dumb. I'm not a good enough musician to tell. But it is interesting. It's not just your straightforward um, kind of writing style and progression. On the third verse, Sherry also jumps in and she does some harmonies. Uh, the drums are still really groovy. Uh, it, it sounds really good together. The song is, is very well arranged so that there's always parts taking over other parts and, and each verse sounds distinct and continues to, to capture your interest and keep you listening. If I can say it, I think this song sounds cinematic because of all the strings, because of all the vocals. Uh, the way that they use the vocals, even on the chorus, almost sounds like an unsettling kind of uh, Tim Burton music. It just, it gives these ideas, I think. And that, um, that's something else I wanted to bring out is the artwork behind this band. I think a lot of the girls do some drawings, but I know Sherry in particular draws and she's done artwork for the band on the previous two, um, bands album artwork. This artwork is a little bit more inspired by, uh, realism, I guess. So it doesn't have that same fantastical um, Alice in Wonderland style to it. But I think this song evokes, in my mind, that art style. It feels more fantastical um, because it's written kind of as a story. And there are these other elements. It doesn't, uh, it's not as concrete when it's talking to you about what it's saying. She's talking about moving from room to room and spying on each other and, and standing up at the top of the mountain and looking down. Um, you get these ideas without it being kind of a concrete um, 
one note song. They're not trying to drive home one thing. I think it's a bit more, um, I keep using this word, but sparse on the ideas and you pull them all together and it makes sense. Anyways, I think that's very particular about this song in the album because the rest of the songs are very poignant in their themes. Um, this song just seems like it has the songwriting from their previous albums, which is fine. And actually, as we take a look into the lyrics, it's really cool because I think the themes that this song hits on is what I was talking about, a really good intro to the album because it's kind of an overview of what we're going to go through on this album. It's the title track too, so it kind of makes sense. Um, when you think of a valley, it evokes emotionally ideas of uh, hardship, of pain, of dark times. But then you also get this idea that a valley is in between two mountains. So you have this contrasting darkness that you're going through, but it's in between these periods of light. Like you're eventually going to get through the valley and come back to the hilltop. And that's something that the song talks about throughout. And that's something we're going to see just the hills and the valleys on this record. Now on this song, Stacy starts with a line that says, real heartbreaker, come and take me to the real heartache that everyone's talking about. It's almost as if he or she's inviting pain in order to write the song. And that's quite a way to kick off this album about, uh, the, you know, called The Valley. So it's about darkness and light. There's a line on the first verse that I, I think uh, is very evocative. She says, I don't believe in magic. And that's when all the music kind of cuts out as well. So you're really focused on what she's singing. And I think what she's saying there is that in these periods of hardship and even knowing that you're going to get through them, she's saying, I don't believe in magic. It's not all going to be better in the morning when I wake up. It's going to take time. I'm going to have to work through this pain that I'm feeling. I'm going to have to work through this heartache that I have is not going to go away, but I will continue to heal. I'm not going to put on a face for this album and make you think that everything is better. This is my catharsis in writing these songs. And I think that scene also in the chorus where she sings, take me home. I walk the night through the valley till everything is fine. And it's a simple three lines that she repeats, but it really, again, kind of sums up this album. She says, take me home. So she's not where she wants to be, but she is going towards it. She is leading that way. And then she says, I walk the night through the valley. She's saying, I'm at my lowest. I'm at my darkest. And then that last line, till everything is fine. The night can only last for so long, and she will come out stronger when all of this is over. Now, something that I didn't mention at the intro that I meant to is I think another interesting thing about this album, because the songwriters are all women, I think this album has a very distinct female perspective. You know, I guess it's just because I listen to a lot of rock music that a lot of the songwriters that I follow, that I listen to, are men. And so they have a different perspective. But this one is a bit different, just inherently because they are women writing these songs. They have a female perspective. And that's really interesting when listening to uh, this record that I enjoy so much.
So the last uh, bit of lyrics I wanted to touch on are found at the bridge when she sings, I don't see everything is right. It's not right. I don't see everything is right and wrong. It's not wrong, but I don't see everything as wrong. So even in the suffering that she's going through, there is a rightness to it. There's always good that can come out of evil. Pain can ultimately be for our good. And if you don't mind me going on a slight bit of a tangent, I think that is what is so awesome about our God. And, and if you don't believe in a God, in a creator, in, in purpose, then it doesn't make sense that any kind of suffering would prove any purpose throughout life. Um, unless you say maybe that we as humans just have a tendency to try and make everything optimistic. But if we do believe in a God who has ordained things to come, then we can confidently say that even in pain and suffering, it is making me stronger. It is leading towards something. There is a purpose in the midst of all my pain. Even though I miss you, I'm thankful it's obvious that this world is futile. So put your hands together and clap for the painful choice you Speaking of pain, here is where we really start getting detailed on this album at track two, Smarter. This time Sherry's singing lead vocals on the song, and I assume that that also means that she wrote the song, because we can see some big differences in the writing styles between Sherry and Stacy. One of the biggest differences is just that it's guitar-driven. The previous song was driven by the piano. This one's driven by the guitar. Both songs still have both instruments in them, but when you listen to what they're doing, one of them just adds color, while one of them is really providing the backbone for the song. Sherry's voice, I think, is a little bit thinner than Stacy's. It's not quite as full, but it's still strong. I think almost everything that she does is a bit more punk influence. So the guitar has the distortion on it. Her voice is slightly more whiny. And her lyrics also tend to have this heart on the sleeve type storytelling. Again, I need to go back and listen to their first two albums to compare, but I think one of the biggest differences between the song, her songwriting in particular on this album is that um, by this point, she was married to Max Bemis, who is the the creative mind behind the band Say Anything. So he's got some musical songwriting and guitar chops that I'm sure lent to the sound of her songs on this album. Besides that, in particular on this song, I do really like the harmonies that accentuate certain lines that Stacy does when she's kind of um, dancing around Sherry's main vocal line. I think it sounds really cool. There's also more vocalizations, as you can hear in the chorus. There's lots of vocalization, but all throughout the song, I think it really works with such strong singers. You've got Sherry and you've got Stacy, And also, I think there's a bit of Chantel as well. I don't think she ever sings any lead vocal lines, except for maybe the end of this song, but it's still buried in the mix. She does a lot more just vocalization. She doesn't do any songwriting until the next album that they put out currents 
And then at the bridge, I also like Stacy's part where it's got kind of more of a pinched sound to it. It almost sounds like she's singing through a megaphone. It's a little bit distorted. You get a lot of the mids in there. It just kind of peeks through when she sings her lines. And I think that was a good just production choice. It, it makes this song stand out. Again, the song is a bit more simple. Uh, to me, it feels a bit more punk for an, an indie rock band, I guess. But it still sounds real melodic and real nice and almost sort of mellow, but it's got that um, guitar-driven edge to it. I like the song, even though I think the chorus is a bit... Um, I was going to say empty, but I think that's way too strong of a word. Maybe there's just a bit too much space for my liking at the chorus. But overall, it's a good song. Now, again, this is where it gets really heavy for what the song is talking about. And in order to start diving into the lyrics, you need to know particularly what Sherry has gone through between their last album and this album. I mentioned earlier that she's married to Max Bemis, but actually in between these albums, she's gone through two marriages, which sounds kind of ridiculous within that short time span. But the circumstances of what had happened is what really um, comes through here on this song and throughout a lot of this record. You see, Sherry had been dating a guy, Chad, I can't think of his last name off the top of my head, he's the guitarist for Newfound Glory, and they'd been dating for a while. I remember when I uh, got one of Newfound Glory's albums, I went through the liner notes, I saw, you know, Chad uh, in his thank yous, of course he was thanking Sherry, um, I'm sure you could see that in the previous Isley records, the reverse of that where Sherry, you know, Sherry and Chad had this relationship and obviously that was going towards marriage and they did eventually get married. Um, but their marriage only lasted about nine, nine and a half months before they, they divorced. Now, I had known about their relationship because of just kind of the scene that I was in in high school. I was really into music and this type of music, although I wasn't too big on either of these bands. Isley was a bit too mellow, Newfound Glory, their singers pretty nasally, so I could only get into a little bit of their music. I, I didn't follow them too closely. So when I had heard about their marriage and their divorce, I, you know, the first thing is just that Yikes, something is really wrong if your marriage couldn't even last a year. I mean, your dating relationship, your engagement portion of your relationship lasted longer than the actual marriage. Something is really wrong. So when going through this album and looking at the themes, you see that bubble up to the surface. And so I went and, you know, started Googling around, trying to see if I could find out what exactly had happened, why they got this divorce so quickly. But I have to admit, as I was researching for this episode and searching online for these details on their divorce, I really would not recommend that you do that. I felt wrong in, in doing that. It felt almost voyeuristic to try and uncover something that was so personal to them and so heart-wrenching. Um, I, you know, I gave up after a couple of searches. I didn't find anything. There's enough information, I think, in these songs to provide us what we need to learn from her pain. It's a very strange thing to, to search for such personal information when it's so painful and it's such a, it's such an ugly thing. Divorce is always ugly. 
So I'd really recommend that you don't uh, look for those details. I, I felt wrong doing it. So now with that background information, let's take a look at these lyrics. Suddenly, verse one makes sense where she sings, if I had one wish, it'd be that we danced more at that apocryphal wedding. And though it stings, I like her choice of words where she says apocryphal. It turns out that the wedding was untrue, that it was fictitious. And then she continues on, if I sound angry, I'm sorry. This body can only cry for so long. So here she's saying that sadness was her first reaction. But in the time since, it's also just washed over into anger. I do think there's a bit of acceptance, but then with a song like this that immediately addresses the subject, there is still that anger. The wound hasn't completely healed, although it, when you push on it, it doesn't uh, feed back with sadness, but with anger. On verse 2, she continues to explain her feelings from her devastation. She says, Even though I miss you, I'm thankful. It's obvious this one was futile. So put your hands together and clap for this painful choice you've made, because it's right. Ah, so talk about draining the blood here. She shows a cocktail of different emotions in that she still misses him, but she's also glad that he's gone. She's sad and angry, but glad at the same time for his decisions as well. At the beginning of verse 2, she's saying, I apologize for not telling you that my halo was cut from paper, sliced by the fibers that made up all the parts that we were together. I like her wordplay here. She was a saint because of their relationship, but now that it's over, she feels the freedom to bear her fangs, which is what she does in the chorus when she says, I'm smarter than you. I'm smarter than you think. Now, this could be taken a few different ways. It does show her strength and her resolve to move on and her confidence that she's better than her ex-husband. But to me, it feels almost dissonant. Like, she still has to speak of herself in terms of him. It shows that she can't completely dissolve this marriage bond that she had with him. It shows her pain that runs so deep that she can't see herself without the piece of him that's still there. The fact that she still feels the need to declare that she's smarter than him feels to me like she still hears his voice demeaning her and she's gonna have to prove to that voice that it isn't true that she's actually smarter to me it doesn't just show her strength to move forward but also her weakness and her feeling that she still has something to prove to him on the bridge she sings you are the narcissist you're everything you saw in me so again, we get that feeling that he was condescending in the way that he was treating her. And now that she's removed from the relationship, she can see how self-obsessed he truly was. Now, at the same time, I think it also gives the chorus another sting. She seems to be wrapped up in herself as well by saying that she's the one who's smarter. And then finally, at the end of the bridge, they repeat the tragic thoughts that are found in the second verse. She says, I found out the hard way this time that you were right and this was all wrong. Though she seems to have been pushed into ending their marriage, she now sees it as the best outcome for both of them. So again, regardless of the details of the disillusion of their marriage and their eventual divorce, and your thoughts on that and your stance on that, I mean, we, we really don't have details. All that we know is what's done is done. And so left in the pieces of that wreckage, she is searching for 
what I talked about in the previous song, a purpose behind the pain. And she is actually seeking to grow out of what's left. It may not be entirely healthy, at least on this song, again, where she's so obsessed in telling him that she is smarter and that he was actually the narcissist. So the song does seem a bit premature if we're trying to look for, you know, a positive spin on everything you write. I think this song was more cathartic in putting her words on paper. And then I think the musicality of the electric guitars and again, that edge that's in the song really um, helps feed the sentiment that's, that's here. And again, we'll see throughout the entire album this same theme coming back up of her divorce and her betrayal and the cutting off of that relationship. But I think that's enough on this track, so let's go to track three, Watch It Die. If I came in the morning, would you still be here? And if I left in the evening too? this song we are back to Stacy again leading the charge with uh, both the songwriting the piano the vocals all that good stuff and once again we can hear the difference between just the way that this song was written and the way that the previous song was written it's a bit more groovy it may be a little bit more laid back it has kind of a bouncy feel to it you've got vocals all over the place it just feels a bit more whimsical than the straightforward kind of rock of the previous song. Which is actually kind of a funny thing to have such a, a, a bouncy feeling for a song that's called Watch It Die. <laughs> now, that said, I think the instruments, they know their place on this song. You know, the bass guitar and the bass line on the piano, they provide this backbone of the song, while the guitar line and the melody of the piano, they give a bit more, uh, well melody and the strings they help just to tie everything together and add this overall feeling her vocals on the song just showcase how confident of a singer that she is i mean from the very beginning also into the choruses she's jumping all over the place she uses her lower register and then immediately jumps to the higher register it's all really smooth and really strong stacy is a powerhouse and she doesn't mind letting you know it and not in a way that sounds arrogant, not in a way that that feels needless, but a way that really adds to the overall song, I think. We've got some more vocalizations on the chorus that you can hear them peeking out. They're singing just kind of a ba-da-da-da-ba-da-da kind of thing. And we've got some hand claps at the second verse, which I like them a lot. Usually hand claps are pretty simple. They're just a, you know, 4-4 four, four hand clap. But these are a bit more complex. It's kind of like a 1 and 2, 1, 2, 1 and 2, 1, 2. It's really nice, and it just adds to just the feeling of the song having different instrumentation, just throwing it in there for a little while, and then when you're used to it, pulling it out. And then the song ends with a vocal crescendo. You know, you have the overlapping vocalizations with the, the main vocal line. 
and of course I'm a sucker for those kinds of things, so it it made me take note. I like it. So as I've said before, lyrically, the song is nothing at all like it sounds. It's a song about falling out of love with someone, and in fact, it's actually more fleshed out than that. So let's take a look. It starts... If I came in the morning, would you still be here? And if I left in the evening too? Well, I don't have the time to keep you in line. If we stop here, it sounds like she's the one being condescending this time and implying that she has to watch over this guy because she doesn't even know if he'll be around in the morning. But she gets a little bit more detailed here. I mean, at the pre-chorus, she sings, Do I fail to know what's in your eyes? So there's something there that she can't quite put her finger on, but it causes a rift that ultimately separates them in the chorus when she sings, My love for you has died tonight. I don't know how to own you. My love for you was faulty. Now, baby, just watch it die. At this point, it almost feels melodramatic because we still don't know what would cause so great a separation between them. But then we get to the second verse where it starts with the lines, I caught you in a lie singing, hey, I'll never be what you want. And from this, we get the impression that he's lied to her. And suddenly things begin to make sense, especially when she repeats the line multiple times for the bridge of the song. I mean, this is the line of the song that she really wants to drive home. Her love has died because she's accepted the fact that she can't always keep tabs on him, and he's shown himself to be a liar. Now, since this is Stacy writing this song, we can't immediately say that this is about Sherry's situation with her ex-husband. We don't know that. But it adds to the overall heaviness of this record, when even on such a light-sounding song, you still have these themes of betrayal and loss. I mean, to the point where she named the song Watch It Die. There is a death that's occurring inside of her because of his actions. And unfortunately, it looks like this week we've only gotten three songs into the album. I'm sorry, guys. I talk a lot. But when it's dealing with something so um, personal and so overwhelming, there's so much emotion in these lyrics, I think it's important to stop and pick it apart and really think about these things. I mean, that's, that's what I'm doing here with The Listening Room. So hopefully you're enjoying it. As always, you know, tell your friends if it's something that you like. I'd love to get more people in on the conversation, and of course you can contact me a number of different ways through my email account, listeningroompodcast at gmail.com. You can call or text my voicemail line, or you can catch me on Twitter at Broccolope, B-R-O-C-C-O-L-O-P-E. I'm tweeting a lot about South by Southwest this week because I'm downtown a lot this week enjoying myself and my family and my city and hopefully a few good bands too. Hopefully next week I will be able to finish out this album since we've already given a nice solid foundation to what we're going to see on the record. Hopefully it'll be a little bit easier to uh, blast through some of these songs. All right, guys, till next time, remember, don't just hear, but listen. My love.